Chapter Four of Dread: A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dread, Chapter Four: The Gordon Family. A week or two had passed over the head of Nina Gordon since she was first introduced to our readers, and during this time she had become familiar with the details of her home life. Nominally, she stood at the head of her plantation as mistress and queen in her own right of all, both indoors and out. But really, she found herself, by her own youth and inexperience, her ignorance of practical details, very much in the hands of those she professed to govern. The duties of a southern housekeeper on a plantation are onerous beyond any amount of northern conception. Every article wanted for daily consumption must be kept under lock and key, and doled out as need arises. For the most part, the servants are only grown-up children, without consideration, forethought, or self-control, quarreling with each other, and divided into parties and factions, hopeless of any reasonable control." Every article of wear for some hundreds of people must be thought of, purchased, cut, and made under the direction of the mistress, and add to this the care of young children, whose childish mothers are totally unfit to govern or care for them, and we have some slight idea of what devolves on southern housekeepers. Our reader has seen what Nina was on her return from New York, and can easily imagine that she had no idea of embracing in good earnest the hard duties of such a life. In fact, since the death of Nina's mother, the situation of the mistress of the family had been only nominally filled by her aunt, Mrs. Nesbitt. The real housekeeper, in fact, was an old mulatto woman named Katie, who had been trained by Nina's mother. Notwithstanding the great inefficiency and childishness of Negro servants, there often are to be found among them those of great practical ability. Whenever owners, through necessity or from tact, select such servants, and subject them to the kind of training and responsibility which belongs to a state of freedom, the same qualities are developed which exist in free society. Nina's mother, being always in delicate health, had from necessity been obliged to commit much responsibility to Aunt Katie, as she was called, and she had grown up in the discipline into a very efficient housekeeper. With her tall red turban, her jingling bunch of keys, and an abundant sense of the importance of her office, she was a dignitary not lightly to be disregarded. It is true that she professed the utmost deference for her young mistress, and very generally passed the compliment of inquiring what she would have done, but it was pretty generally understood that her assent to Aunt Katie's propositions was considered as much a matter of course as the Queen's to a ministerial recommendation. Indeed, had Nina chosen to demur, her Prime Minister had the power, without departing in the slightest degree from a respectful bearing, to involve her in labyrinths of perplexity without end. And as Nina hated trouble and wanted above all things to have her time to herself for her own amusement, she wisely concluded not to interfere with Aunt Katie's reign. 
and to get by persuasion and coaxing what the old body would have been far too consequential and opinionated to give to authority in like manner at the head of all outdoor affairs was the young quadroon harry whom we introduced in the first chapter in order to come fully at the relation in which he stood to the estate we must after the fashion of historians generally go back a hundred years or so in order to give our readers a fair start behold us therefore assuming historic dignity as follows among the first immigrants to virginia in its colonial days was one thomas gordon knight a distant offshoot of the noble gordon family renowned in scottish history being a gentleman of some considerable energy and impatient of the narrow limits of the old world where he found little opportunity to obtain that wealth which was necessary to meet the demands of his family pride he struck off for himself into virginia naturally of an adventurous turn he was one of the first to propose the enterprise which afterwards resulted in a settlement on the banks of the chowan river in north carolina here he took up for himself a large tract of the finest alluvial land and set himself to the business of planting with the energy and skill characteristic of his nation and as the soil was new and fertile he soon received a very munificent return for his enterprise inspired with remembrances of old ancestral renown the gordon family transmitted in their descent all the traditions feelings and habits which were the growth of the aristocratic caste from which they sprung the name of kenema given to the estate came from an indian guide and interpreter who accompanied the first colonel gordon as confidential servant the estate being entailed passed down through the colonial times unbroken in the family whose wealth for some years seemed to increase with every generation the family mansion was one of those fond reproductions of the architectural style of the landed gentry in england in which as far as their means could compass it the planters were fond of indulging carpenters and carvers had been brought over at great expense from the old country to give the fruits of their skill in its erection and it was a fancy of the ancestor who built it to display in its woodwork that exuberance of new and rare woods with which the american continent was supposed to abound he had made an adventurous voyage into south america and brought from thence specimens of those materials more brilliant than rosewood and hard as ebony which grow so profusely on the banks of the amazon that the natives use them for timber the floor of the central hall of the house was a curiously inlaid parquet of these brilliant materials arranged in fine blockwork highly polished the outside of the house was built in the old virginian fashion with two tiers of balconies running completely round as being much better suited to the american climate than any of european mode the inside however was decorated with sculpture and carvings copied many of them from ancestral residences in scotland giving to the mansion an air of premature antiquity here for two or three generations the gordon family had lived in opulence during the time however of nina's father and still more after his death 
there appeared evidently on the place signs of that gradual decay which has conducted many an old virginian family to poverty and ruin slave labor of all others the most worthless and profitless had exhausted the first vigor of the soul and the proprietors gradually degenerated from those habits of energy which were called forth by the necessities of the first settlers and everything proceeded with that free and easy abandon in which both master and slave appeared to have one common object that of proving who should waste with most freedom at colonel gordon's death he had bequeathed as we have already shown the whole family estate to his daughter under the care of a servant of whose uncommon intelligence and thorough devotion of heart he had the most ample proof when it is reflected that the overseers are generally taken from a class of whites who are often lower in ignorance and barbarism than even the slaves and that their wastefulness and rapacity are a byword among the planters it is no wonder that colonel gordon thought that in leaving his plantation under the care of one so energetic competent and faithful as harry he had made the best possible provision for his daughter harry was the son of his master and inherited much of the temper and constitution of his father tempered by the soft and genial temperament of the beautiful ebo mulatris who was his mother from this circumstance harry had received advantages of education very superior to what commonly fell to the lot of his class he had also accompanied his master as a valet during the tour of europe and thus his opportunities of general observation had been still further enlarged and that tact by which those of the mixed blood seem so peculiarly fitted to appreciate all the finer aspects of conventional life had been called out and exercised so that it would be difficult in any circle to meet with a more agreeable and gentlemanly person in leaving a man of this character and his own son still in the bonds of slavery colonel gordon was influenced by that passionate devotion to his daughter which with him overpowered every consideration a man so cultivated he argued to himself might find many avenues opened to him in freedom might be tempted to leave the estate to other hands and seek his own fortune he therefore resolved to leave him bound by an indissoluble tie for a term of years trusting to his attachment to nina to make this service tolerable possessed of a very uncommon judgment firmness and knowledge of human nature harry had found means to acquire great ascendancy over the hands of the plantation and either through fear or through friendship there was a universal subordination to him the executors of the estate scarcely made even a feint of overseeing him and he proceeded to all intents and purposes with the perfect ease of a free man everybody for miles around knew and respected him and had he not been possessed of a good share of the thoughtful forecasting temperament derived from his scottish parentage he might have been completely happy and forgotten even the existence of the chains whose weight he never felt it was only in the presence of tom gordon colonel gordon's lawful son that he ever realized that he was a slave 
from childhood there had been a rooted enmity between the brothers which deepened as the years passed on and as he found himself on every return of the young man to the place subjected to taunts and ill-usage to which his defenceless position left him no power to reply he had resolved never to marry and lay the foundation for a family until such time as he should be able to have command of his own destiny and that of his household but the charms of a pretty French quadroon overcame the dictates of prudence. The history of Tom Gordon is the history of many a young man grown up under the institutions and in the state of society which formed him. Nature had endowed him with no mean share of talent, and with that perilous quickness of nervous organization which, like fire, is a good servant but a bad master out of those elements with due training might have been formed an efficient and eloquent public man but brought up from childhood among servants to whom his infant will was law indulged during the period of infantile beauty and grace in the full expression of every whim growing into boyhood among slaves with but an average amount of plantation morality his passions developed at a fearfully early time of life and before his father thought of seizing the reins of authority, they had gone out of his hands forever. Tutor after tutor was employed on the plantation to instruct him, and left terrified by his temper. The secluded nature of the plantation left him without that healthful stimulus of society, which is often a help in enabling a boy to come to the knowledge and control of himself. His associates were either the slaves or the overseers, who are generally unprincipled and artful, or the surrounding whites, who lay in a yet lower deep of degradation. For one reason or another, it was for the interest of all these to flatter his vices, and covertly to assist him in opposing and deceiving his parents. Thus an early age saw him an adept in every low form of vice. In despair he was at length sent to an academy at the north, where he commenced his career on the first day by striking the teacher in the face, and was consequently expelled. Thence he went to another, where, learning caution from experience, he was enabled to maintain his foothold. There he was a successful colporteur and missionary in the way of introducing a knowledge of bowie knives, revolvers, and vicious literature artful bold and daring his residence for a year at a school was sufficient to initiate in the way of ruin perhaps one-fourth of the boys he was handsome and when not provoked good-natured and had that off-hand way of spending money which passes among boys for generosity the simple sons of hard-working farmers bred in habits of industry and frugality were dazzled and astonished by the freedom with which he talked and drank and spit and swore he was a hero in their eye and they began to wonder at the number of things to them unknown before which went to make up the necessaries of life from school he was transferred to college and there placed under the care of a professor who was paid an exorbitant sum for overlooking his affairs the consequence was that while many a northern boy whose father could not afford to pay for similar patronage was disciplined rusticated or expelled as the case might be 
Tom Gordon exploited gloriously through college, getting drunk every week or two, breaking windows, smoking freshmen, heading various sprees in different parts of the country, and at last graduating nobody knew how, except the patron professor who received an extra sum for the extra difficulties of the case. Returned home, he went into a lawyer's office in Raleigh, where, by a pleasant fiction, he was said to be reading law, because he was occasionally seen at the office during the intervals of his more serious avocations of gambling and horse-racing and drinking. His father, an affectionate but passionate man, was wholly unable to control him, and the conflicts between them often shook the whole domestic fabric. Nevertheless, to the last, Colonel Gordon indulged the old hope for such cases made and provided that Tom would get through sowing his wild oats some time and settle down to be a respectable man, in which hope he left him the half of his property. Since that time, Tom seemed to have studied on no subject except how to accelerate the growth of those wings which riches are said to be inclined to take under the most favorable circumstances. As often happens in such cases of utter ruin, Tom Gordon was a much worse character for all the elements of good which he possessed. He had sufficient perception of right and sufficient conscience remaining to make him bitter and uncomfortable. In proportion as he knew himself unworthy of his father's affection and trust, he became jealous and angry at any indications of the want of it. He had contracted a settled ill-will to his sister for no other apparent reason except that the father took a comfort in her which he did not in him. From childhood it was his habit to vex and annoy her in every possible way, and it was for this reason, among many others, that Harry had persuaded Mr. John Gordon, Nina's uncle and guardian, to place her at the New York boarding school where she acquired what is termed an education. After finishing her school career, she had been spending a few months in a family of a cousin of her mother's and running with loose rein the career of fashionable gaiety. Luckily, she brought home with her, unspoiled, a genuine love of nature, which made the rural habits of plantation life agreeable to her. Neighbors there were few. Her uncle's plantation, five miles distant, was the nearest. Other families with whom the Gordons were in the habit of exchanging occasional visits were some ten or fifteen miles distant. It was Nina's delight, however, in her muslin wrapper and straw hat, to patter about over the plantation, to chat with the negroes among their cabins, amusing herself with the various drolleries and peculiarities to which long absence had given the zest of novelty. Then she would call for her pony, and attended by Harry or some of her servants, would career through the woods, gathering the wild flowers with which they abound, perhaps stop for a day at her uncle's, have a chat and a romp with him, and return the next morning. In the comparative solitude of her present life, her mind began to clear itself of some former follies, as water, when at rest, deposits the sediment which clouded it. Apart from the crowd, the world of gaieties which had dizzied her, she could not help admitting to herself the folly of much she had been doing. 
Something, doubtless, was added to this by the letters of Clayton. The tone of them, so manly and sincere, so respectful and kind, so removed either from adulation or sentimentalism, had an effect upon her greater than she was herself aware of. So Nina, in her positive and off-hand way, sat down one day and wrote farewell letters to both her other lovers, and felt herself quite relieved by the process. A young person could scarce stand more entirely alone as to sympathetic intercourse with relations than Nina. It is true that the presence of her mother's sister in the family caused it to be said that she was residing under the care of an aunt. Miss Nesbitt, however, was simply one of those well-bred, well-dressed lay figures whose only office in life seems to be to occupy a certain room in a house, to sit in certain chairs at proper hours, to make certain remarks at suitable intervals of conversation. In her youth, this lady had run quite a career as a belle and beauty. Nature had endowed her with a handsome face and figure, and youth and the pleasure of admiration for some years supplied a sufficient flow of animal spirits to make the beauty effective. Early married, she became the mother of several children who were, one by one, swept into the grave. The death of her husband, last of all, left her with a very small fortune, alone in the world, and like many in similar circumstances, she was content to sink into an appendage to another's family. Mrs. Nesbitt considered herself very religious, and as there is a great deal that passes for religion ordinarily, of which she may be fairly considered a representative, we will present our readers with a philosophical analysis of the article. When young, she had thought only of self in the form of admiration and the indulgence of her animal spirits. When married, she had thought of self only in her husband and children, whom she loved because they were hers and for no other reason. When death swept away her domestic circle and time stole the beauty and freshness of animal spirits, her self-love took another form, and perceiving that this world was becoming to her somewhat passe she determined to make the best of her chance for another religion she looked upon in light of a ticket which being once purchased and snugly laid away in a pocket-book is to be produced at the celestial gate and thus secure admission to heaven at a certain period of her life, while she deemed this ticket unpurchased, she was extremely low-spirited and gloomy, and went through a quantity of theological reading, enough to have astonished herself had she foreseen it in the days of her bellship. As the result of all, she at last presented herself as a candidate for admission to a Presbyterian church in the vicinity, there professing her determination to run the Christian race. By the Christian race, she understood going at certain stated times to religious meetings, reading the Bible and hymn book at certain hours in the day, giving at regular intervals stipulated sums to religious charities, and preserving a general state of leaden indifference to everybody and everything in the world. She thus fondly imagined that she had renounced the world because she looked back with disgust on gaieties for which she had no longer strength or spirits. Nor did she dream that the intensity with which her mind travelled the narrow world of self, dwelling on the plaits of her caps, the cut of her stone-coloured satin gowns, the making of her tea and her bed, and the saving of her narrow income, 
was exactly the same in kind though far less agreeable in development as that which once expended itself in dressing and dancing like many other apparently negative characters she had a pertinacious intensity of an extremely narrow and aimless self-will her plans of life small as they were had a thousand crimps and plaits to every one of which she adhered with invincible pertinacity the poor lady little imagined when she sat with such punctilious satisfaction while the reverend mr orthodoxy demonstrated that selfishness is the essence of all moral evil that the sentiment had the slightest application to her nor dreamed that the little quiet muddy current of self-will which ran without noise or indecorum under the whole structure of her being might be found in a future day to have undermined all her hopes of heaven of course mrs nesbit regarded nina and all other lively young people with a kind of melancholy endurance as shocking spectacles of worldliness there was but little sympathy to be sure between the dashing and outspoken and almost defiant little nina and the sombre silver-gray apparition which glided quietly about the wide halls of her paternal mansion in fact it seemed to afford the latter a mischievous pleasure to shock her respectable relative on all convenient occasions mrs nesbit felt it occasionally her duty as she remarked to call her lively niece into her apartment and endeavour to persuade her to read some such volume as law's serious call or owen on the one hundred and nineteenth psalm and to give her a general and solemn warning against all the vanities of the world in which were generally included dressing in any colour but black and drab dancing flirting writing love-letters and all other enormities down to the eating of peanut candy one of these scenes is just now enacting in this good lady's apartment upon which we will raise the curtain mrs nesbit a diminutive blue-eyed fair-complexioned little woman of some five feet high sat gently swaying in that respectable asylum for american old age commonly called a rocking-chair every rustle of her silvery silk gown every fold of the snowy kerchief on her neck every plait of her immaculate cap spoke a soul long retired from this world and its cares the bed arranged with extremest precision however was covered with a melange of french finery flounces laces among which nina kept up a continual agitation like that produced by a breeze in a flower-bed as she unfolded turned and fluttered them before the eyes of her relative i have been through all this nina said the latter with a melancholy shake of her head and i know the vanity of it well auntie i haven't been through it so i don't know yes my dear when i was of your age i used to go to balls and parties and could think of nothing but of dress and admiration i have been through it all and seen the vanity of it well aunt i want to go through it and see the vanity of it too that's just what i'm after i'm on the way to be as sombre and solemn as you are but i'm bound to have a good time first now look at this pink brocade had the brocade been a pall it could scarcely have been regarded with a more lugubrious aspect ah child such a dying world as this to spend so much time and thought on dress why aunt nesbit 
"'Yesterday you spent just two whole hours "'in thinking whether you should turn the breadth of your black silk dress "'upside down or downside up. "'And this was a dying world all the time. "'Now I don't see that it's any better to think of black silk "'than it is of pink.' "'This was a view of the subject "'which seemed never to have occurred to the good lady. "'But now, aunt, do cheer up, "'and look at this box of artificial flowers. "'You know, I thought I'd bring a stock on from New York.' Now, aren't these perfectly lovely? I like flowers that mean something. Now, these are all imitations of natural flowers, so perfect that you'd scarcely know them from the real. See there, that's a moss rose. And now look at these sweet peas. You'd think they'd just been picked. And there, that heliotrope, and these jessamines, and those orange blossoms, and that wax camellia. Turn off my eyes from beholding vanity said Miss Nesbitt, shutting her eyes and shaking her head. What if I wear the richest vest? Peacocks and flies are better dressed. This flesh, with all its glorious forms, must drop to earth and feed the worms. Aunt, I do think you have the most horrid, disgusting set of hymns, all about worms and dust and such things. It's my duty, child, when I see you so much taken up with such sinful finery. Aunt, do you think artificial flowers are sinful? Yes, dear, they are a wasteful sin of time and money, and take off our mind from more important things. Well, aunt, then what did the Lord make sweet peas and roses and orange blossoms for? I'm sure it's only doing as he does to make flowers. He don't make everything gray or stone color. Now, if you only would come out in the garden this morning and see the oleanders and the crepe myrtle and the pinks, the roses and the tulips and the hyacinths, I'm sure it would do you good. Oh, I should certainly catch cold, child, if I went outdoors. Millie left a crack open in the window last night, and I sneezed three or four times since. It will never do for me to go out in the garden. The feeling of the ground striking up through my shoes is very unhealthy. Well, at any rate, aunt, I should think, if the Lord didn't wish us to wear roses and jessamines, he would not have made them. And it is the most natural thing in the world to want to wear flowers. It only feeds vanity and a love of display, my dear. I don't think it's vanity or a love of display. I should want to dress prettily if I were the only person in the world. I love pretty things because they are pretty. I like to wear them because they make me look pretty. There it is, child. You want to dress up your poor perishing body to look pretty. That's the thing. To be sure I do. Why shouldn't I? I mean to look as pretty as I can as long as I live. "'You seem to have quite a conceit of your beauty,' said Aunt Nesbitt. "'Well, I know I'm pretty. I'm not going to pretend I don't. "'I like my own looks. Now that's a fact. "'I'm not like one of your Greek statues, I know. "'I'm not wonderfully handsome, nor likely to set the world on fire with my beauty. "'I'm just a pretty little thing, and I like flowers and laces and all of those things, "'and I mean to like them, and I don't think there'll be a bit of religion in my not liking them. "'And as for all that disagreeable stuff about the worms that you are always telling me, "'I don't think it does me a particle of good. "'And if religion is going to make me so pokey, I shall put it off as long as I can.' I used to feel just as you do, dear, but I've seen the folly of it. 
if i've got to lose my love for everything that is bright everything that is lively and everything that is pretty and like to read such horrid stupid books why i'd rather be buried and done with it that's the opposition of the natural heart my dear the conversation was here interrupted by the entrance of a bright curly-headed mulatto boy bearing mrs nesbit's daily luncheon oh here comes tom tit said nina now for a scene let's see what he has forgotten now tom tit was in his way a great character in the mansion he and his grandmother were the property of mrs nesbit his true name was no less respectable and methodical than that of thomas but as he was one of those restless and effervescent sprites who seemed to be born for the confusion of quiet people nina had rechristened him tom tit which sobriquet was immediately recognized by the whole household as being eminently descriptive and appropriate a constant ripple and eddy of drollery seemed to pervade his whole being his large saucy black eyes had always a laughing fire in them and it was impossible to meet without a smile in return slave and property though he was yet the first sentiment of reverence for any created thing seemed yet wholly unawakened in his curly pate breezy idle careless flighty as his woodland namesake life to him seemed only a repressed and pent-up ebullition of animal enjoyment and almost the only excitement of mrs nesbit's quiet life was her chronic controversy with tom tit forty or fifty times a day did the old body assure him that she was astonished at his conduct and as many times would he reply by showing the whole set of his handsome teeth on the broad grin wholly inconsiderate of the state of despair into which he had thus reduced her on the present occasion as he entered the room his eye was caught by the great display of finery on the bed and hastily dumping the waiter on the first chair that occurred with a flirt and a spring as lithe as that of a squirrel he was seated in a moment astride the footboard indulging in a burst of merriment good law miss nina where on earth these year come from good law some on em for me isn't there you see that child now said mrs nesbit rocking back in her chair with the air of a martyr after all my talkings to him nina you ought not to allow that it just encourages him tom get down you naughty creature you and get the stand and put the waiter on it mind yourself now said nina laughing tom chit cut a somerset from the footboard to the floor and striking up on a very high key i'll bet my money on a bobtail nag he danced out a small table as if it had been a partner and deposited it with a jerk at the side of mrs nesbit who aimed a cuff at his ears but as he adroitly ducked his head the intended blow came down upon the table with more force than was comfortable to the inflictor i believe that child is made of air i never can hit him said the good lady waxing red in the face he's enough to provoke a saint so he is aunt enough to provoke two saints like you and me tom tit you rogue she said giving a gentle pull to a handful of his curly hair be good now and i'll show you the pretty things by and by come put the waiter on the table now see if you can't walk for once casting down his eyes with an irresistible look of mock solemnity tom tit marched with the waiter and placed it by his mistress 
the good lady after drawing off her gloves and making sundry little decorous preparations said a short grace over her meal during which time tom tit seemed to be holding his sides with repressed merriment then gravely laying hold of the handle of the teapot she stopped short gave an exclamation and flirted her fingers as if she felt it almost scalding hot tom tit i do believe you intend to burn me to death some day laws missus dat dar hot oh sure i was tickler to set the nose round to the fire no you didn't you stuck the handle right into the fire as you're always doing laws now wonder if i did said tom tit assuming an abstracted appearance pears as if i never can remember which dem dar is nose and which handle now i's a studyin on dat there most all de mornin was so said he gathering confidence as he saw by nina's dancing eyes how greatly she was amused you need a sound whipping sir that's what you need said mrs nesbit kindling up a sudden wrath oh i knows it said tom tit we's unprofitable servants all on us lord's mercy that we ain't assumed all on us nina was so completely overcome by this novel application of the text which she had heard her aunt laboriously drumming into tom tit the sabbath before that she laughed aloud with rather uproarious merriment oh aunt there's no use he don't know anything he's nothing but an incarnate joke a walking hoax no i doesn't know nothing miss nina said tom tit at the same time looking out from under his long eyelashes don't know nothing at all never can well now tom tit said mrs nesbit drawing out a little blue cowhide from under her chair and looking at him resolutely you see if this teapot handle is hot again i'll give it to you do you hear yes missus said tom tit with that indescribable sing-song of indifference which is so common and so provoking in his class and now tom tit you go downstairs and clean the knives for dinner yes missus said he pirouetting towards the door and once in the passage he struck up a vigorous oh i'm going to glory won't you go along with me accompanying himself by slapping his own sides as he went down two stairs at a time going to glory he looks like it i think it's the third or fourth time that that child has blistered my fingers with this teapot and i know he does it on purpose so ungrateful when i spend my time teaching him hour after hour laboring with him so i declare i don't believe these children have got any souls well aunt i declare i should think you'd get out of all patience with him yet he's so funny i cannot for the life of me help laughing here a distant whoop on the staircase and a tempestuous chorus to the methodist hymn with the words oh come my love and brethren announced that tom tit was on the return and very soon throwing open the door he marched in with an air of the greatest importance tom tit didn't i tell you to go clean the knives law missus come up here to bring miss nana's love letters said he producing two or three letters good law though said he checking himself forgot to put them on a weighty and before a word could be said he was out of the room and downstairs and at the height of furious contest with the girl who was cleaning the silver for a waiter to put miss nina's letters on
dar miss nina appealing to her when she appeared rosa won't let me have no weighty i could pull your hair for you you little image said nina seizing the letters from his hands and laughing while she cuffed his ears well said tom tit looking after her with great solemnity mrs indy right on it ain't no kind of order in dish here house spite all i can do one says put letters on weighty another one won't let you have weighty to put letters on and finally miss nina she pull em all away just a way things goin on in dish here house all the time i can't help it done all i can just the way missus says there was one member of nina's establishment of a character so marked that we cannot refrain from giving her a separate place in our picture of her surroundings and this was milly the waiting woman of aunt nesbit aunt milly as she was commonly called was a tall broad-shouldered deep-chested african woman with a fullness of figure approaching to corpulence her habit of standing and of motion was peculiar and majestic reminding one of the scripture expression upright as the palm tree her skin was of a peculiar blackness and softness not unlike black velvet her eyes were large full and dark and had about them that expression of wishfulness and longing which one may sometimes have remarked in dark eyes her mouth was large and her lips though partaking of the african fullness had nevertheless something decided and energetic in their outline which was still further seconded by the heavy moulding of the chin a frank smile which was common with her disclosed a row of the most splendid and perfect teeth her hair without approaching to the character of the anglo-saxon was still different from the ordinary woolly coat of the negro and seemed more like an infinite number of close knotted curls of brilliant glossy blackness the parents of milly were prisoners taken in african wars and she was a fine specimen of one of those warlike and splendid races of whom as they have seldom been reduced to slavery there are but few and rare specimens among the slaves of the south her usual headdress was a high turban of those brilliant colored madras handkerchiefs in which the instinctive taste of the dark races leads them to delight milly's was always put on and worn with a regal air as if it were the coronet of a queen for the rest her dress consisted of a well-fitted gown of dark stuff of a quality somewhat finer than the usual household apparel a neatly starched white muslin handkerchief folded across her bosom and a clean white apron completed her usual costume no one could regard her as a whole and not feel their prejudice in favor of the exclusive comeliness of white races somewhat shaken placed among the gorgeous surroundings of african landscape and scenery it might be doubted whether any one's taste could have desired as a completion to her appearance to have blanched the glossy skin whose depth of coloring harmonizes so well with the intense and fiery glories of a tropical landscape in character milly was worthy of her remarkable external appearance heaven had endowed her with a soul as broad and generous as her ample frame her passions rolled and burned in her bosom with a tropical fervor a shrewd and abundant mother-wit united with a vein of occasional drollery gave to her habits of speech a quaint vivacity 
a native adroitness gave an unwanted command over all the functions of her fine body so that she was endowed with that much coveted property which the new englander denominates faculty which means the intuitive ability to seize at once on the right and best way of doing everything which is to be done at the same time she was possessed of that high degree of self-respect which led her to be incorruptibly faithful and thorough in all she undertook less as it often seemed from any fealty or deference to those whom she served than from a kind of native pride in well-doing which led her to deem it beneath herself to slight or pass over the least thing which she had undertaken her promises were inviolable her owners always knew that what she once said would be done if it were within the bounds of possibility the value of an individual thus endowed in person and character may be easily conceived by those who understand how rare either among slaves or freemen is such a combination milly was therefore always considered in the family as a most valuable piece of property and treated with more than common consideration as a mind even when uncultivated will ever find its level it often happened that milly's amount of being and force of character gave her ascendancy even over those who were nominally her superiors as her ways were commonly found to be the best ways she was left in most cases to pursue them without opposition or control but favored as she was her life had been one of deep sorrows she had been suffered it is true to contract a marriage with a very finely endowed mulatto man on a plantation adjoining her owners by whom she had a numerous family of children who inherited all her fine physical and mental endowments with more than usual sensibility and power of reflection the idea that the children so dear to her were from their birth not her own that they were from the first hour of their existence merchantable articles having a fixed market value in proportion to every excellence and liable to all the reverses of merchantable goods sank with deep weight into her mind unfortunately the family to which she belonged being reduced to poverty there remained often no other means of making up the deficiency of income than the annual sale of one or two negroes milly's children from their fine developments were much coveted articles their owner was often tempted by extravagant offers for them and therefore to meet one crisis or another of family difficulties they had been successively sold from her at first she had met this doom with almost the ferocity of a lioness but the blow oftentimes repeated had brought with it a dull endurance and christianity had entered as it often does with the slave through the rents and fissures of a broken heart those instances of piety which are sometimes though rarely found among slaves and which transcend the ordinary development of the best instructed are generally the results of calamities and afflictions so utterly desolating as to force the soul to depend on god alone but where one soul is thus raised to higher piety thousands are crushed in hopeless imbecility End of chapter four the Gordon family.